Thank you, Sharon. It's uh, wonderful to see God uh, still calling us to the ends of the earth. And I know it's special when you're out there serving the Lord uh, full-time capacity. You really appreciate what, uh, what working for the Lord is like. Um, we will continue our look through uh, the book of Hebrews. So if you would, please turn to the book of Hebrews and chapter 8. And while you'll do so, I'll give you a little bit of uh, what I call Bible trivia. Of course, nothing is really trivial about the Bible, but uh, we kind of like testing people's knowledge of his word. It uh, stimulates us to study it more. I'll read you a verse and you tell me who it's talking about. This is um, Luke 1, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Who is that talking about? Sure you want to see the answer? All right, that's a good guess, but it's not uh, actually the case. A good try, though. All right, I'll keep on reading and uh, raise your hand when you know who that is. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled. All right, I see a hand there, Eliana. John the Baptist, very good. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And it's actually the last phrase that... Uh, caught my attention as I was preparing for the passage. It is a people prepared for the Lord. Who are the people who were prepared for the Lord? Who are the people who were? Nessia? Yeah, the Jews. Very good. So they were the, if you were the Old Testament uh, people of God. And uh, God revealed himself to Abraham. And then uh, he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He gave them his laws. And uh, he was preparing them, right? God was preparing them. The reason that's important is people may ask today, what's the way to God? How do I get to God? Uh, I have a, a chart up there. I don't know if you can throw it up. I'm an engineer at work. And uh, I look at stuff like this all day long. Of course, not this specific set of data. I'm not allowed to show you the sets of data I'm looking at. But it's basically like a bunch of points on a screen. And uh, you're trying to draw a line through them to understand the relationship, right? You want to know, well, as I'm increasing the temperature or something else, what's happening to my uh, LED? I work with LEDs, light-emitting diodes. And you're trying to find these relationships, these correlations. Now, a lot of time you look at them and it looks kind of like a blob of dots. If I didn't have that line over there, and you'd look at that blob of dots, right, would you know what the relationship is, right? You could probably draw the line in several different directions and think, well, it might kind of fit, may not kind of fit. But what you could do is if you, if you get more data points, you stretch it over more you know, LEDs, over more years, over some larger parameters, and the relationship becomes clearer. Right? It becomes a lot clearer. Okay, you know, I need to draw a line like this through it. Right? And it's kind of like that when you're asking about what's the right way to God? How do I get to God? Well, how long can you draw your line? 
You know, if, you, if you're just looking at uh, perhaps the New Testament, you know, people will, uh, will claim that the New Testament is, is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And they'll find different interpretations of it and different ways of, you know, connecting the dots and saying this is the way to God. And that has some validity, but it's, it, the validity increases as you're willing to stretch it down and go farther back in time, go to the Old Testament, right? See, what was the way to God in the Old Testament? And then it becomes less questionable. What is the way to God? You see the line that's going through. Right? It's something we like to study. Sometimes we look at the stranger book, the stranger on the road to Emmaus, because it takes us all the way back to the beginning, right? And it shows how it stretches forward, right? And it becomes easier to say, yeah, this must be the way to God. It's consistent, right, with the way it was in history. And so as we're looking to the book of the Hebrews, we're really looking at the Jews, the people that God has prepared. And these are people who have come to faith in Jesus, right? But now they're beginning to question it. Hard times have come. Persecution has arisen. Did we make the wrong move in believing in Jesus? Maybe we need to go back to what uh, the Old Testament was teaching, back to the priesthood, right? And uh, the author to the Hebrews says, no, no, Jesus is the right way. And the way he shows it is by taking them back to the Old Testament and showing, look, this is the way God had for us then. Here's how it stretches out now. You can see the connection, right? So that's one of the values we get by studying the book of Hebrews. We get to see how God prepared his people and how the Old and the New Testament align, how the Old covenant, covenant and the New Covenant are connected together. It adds to our confidence. Or well, if we're still seeking for the way to God, it, it shows us the way to God. Okay, uh, with that introduction, I always uh, give people an opportunity to quote uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We said these are the key verses for the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you haven't quoted it yet and you'd like to quote it this morning, please raise your hand. Okay, so as a result, we'll all look at it together and uh, practice it yet once more as a congregation. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Really good, excellent. So next time, do it without looking. <laughs> okay, so book of Hebrews, and now we are in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. Isn't it wonderful? It took him eight chapters to get to the main point. But at least now we are at the main point. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things." as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now 
he has obtained a more excellent ministry in as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So we pointed out in the last uh, uh, few weeks that uh, Jesus is being here compared to what we might call the Levitical system. So the Jews had a way of approaching God and it had to do with uh, a priest or a high priest operating in the tabernacle or the temple. And uh, he was, if you would, this uh, you know, professional help that they needed. They needed a person whose full-time job was to connect the people with God. And he was there at the temple offering these sacrifices. And uh, what we were reminded or shown in the last chapter is that Jesus really is also a high priest, right? His job is to connect us with God, right? And uh, so he's continuing with that analogy here, and he's showing uh, the, the additional ways in which Jesus connects with the Old Testament teaching, okay? So Jesus is a high priest, just as they had a high priest to connect people with God. So Jesus is the perfect high priest. He is the man God, able to lay a hand on man and lay a hand on God at the same time and reconcile the two, be the mediator between man and God. Now, it continues here by stressing the place in which Jesus is doing it. So the Jews had a place, as I mentioned, the tabernacle. We can throw a picture of that on. Right? This is where the high priest served all the time. He needed a place in which to make the offerings to God that will reconcile the nation of Israel with God. He needed a special place. In a similar way, Jesus needs a special place. We're, said, we're told that in verse 1. Now we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Where is Jesus serving as our high priest? In heaven, right? He doesn't have a place like this on earth. He is literally in the throne room of God, offering to God the sacrifices, reconciling us to God. Now, I work in a place uh, like this. Okay, it's a large room with a lot of cubicles. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the place that I occupy kind of shows you really how valuable my work is. All right, now we can go to the next picture. You know, this is, uh, you know, a person who works there whose valuable might be a little bit more, more important than mine. Can anybody tell what that place is? That is, the, that is the Oval Office, right? That's where the President of the United States make the decisions that, you know, run this country, right? A little bit more important. So that's kind of the analogy. Now, I don't want to compare the tabernacle to a cubicle, Right? It was a very important place, but it was just a place on earth. And it can be moved around to any spot on earth. Right? Whereas Jesus is in the throne room of God. It's interesting to me, there's actually a seat, if you keep that picture on for just a second. If you notice, there's actually a chair on the right hand of the president. Just imagine, let's say, are you familiar with the lobbying, the lobbyists in, in Washington, D.C.? Right? You know, let's say you had something that was very important to you. You wanted a bridge built across the bay. I know we have eight, but we need another one, or however many we have. And you know, that's going to cost a lot of money, and we're going to need help from the U.S. government. Right? There's going to be another billion dollars or so. We can't quite afford it by ourselves. So you might hire someone to go and talk to various representatives and senators and people in the government to try to push this idea through. Right? 
because those are the people who make the decision. So you would hire someone, and those people are called lobbyists, right? They know who they need to know in Washington to get things done. And uh, so just imagine that you, know, you knew the person who got to sit there at the right hand of the president all the time. Right? I mean, that's the guy that can get things done. And that's what, who the Lord Jesus is. Right? He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Right? He, he has God's ear. Right? That's the kind of person you would like on your side. So the high priest needs a, a good place to work. He also needs the right thing to offer. So it says, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So this is something that, that the Jews would have understood. Uh, there, there were these sacrifices that had to be offered, right? And, um, you know, we don't have sacrifices to it today so much, so we can't quite connect. But uh, they understood that uh, they were sinners. And when they committed a sin, they offended a holy God. And God revealed that uh, the only thing that can cover the sin was the sacrifice of an animal. Right? And that's a, actually a consistent message in the Bible. The wages of sin is death. The consequence of our sin against God is we are separated from God. That's what death really is, separation. And... Uh, so not surprising to them, it wouldn't be shocking that Jesus would also need something to offer. He can't just go to heaven and say to God, you know, God, I, I understand that uh, no, I'd sinned over here, but I'd like you to just forget about it. Right? Not a big deal. Right? No, they understood Jesus would have to make an offering to make up for that. And what is the offering that the Lord Jesus makes? We're told in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus took his blood with which he paid for our sins on the cross and he offers it to God the Father right, as the propitiation for our sins. Right? Now, there's, there's something in this passage that I don't want to pass by. He uses this word, shadows and copies. He says in verse 5, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So let me say this. Let's say I, I was to offer you this uh, painting over here. Okay? This is my gift to you. Right? And let's say this is the original. Right? This is, this is what the painter painted with his own hand and brush. I'd like to give it to you as a gift. Would you be interested? What if I told you it just sold for $300 million? That would be some gift, right? Now, what if I were to offer you just a poster? This is a copy of it. How would you go? Cost me $5 in Safeway. <laughs> right? You would... Yeah. <laughs> well, why is it not as valuable? Right? Why is one $5, one $300 million? Right? Because one is the original. There's only one of a kind. And that's the case with the Lord Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his what? His only begotten son. Right? There's just one son of God. And he shed his blood on the cross for you and for me. 
And that is the only sacrifice that has value in the sight of God. Everything else is a copy. Those lambs that were slain for 2,000 years were copies. Right? I mean, they would have a value. Right? I'm not saying they didn't have a value. But he was the one of infinite value. Right? And those were the copies of what Jesus was to offer for you and for me. Next he says, and he's kind of connecting the two in verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So here's a new comparison between the Lord Jesus and the Levitical priesthood. It's, it's being a mediator of a covenant. They had a covenant between Israel and God, that they were mediating, meaning they were the people who were making it possible. And he is a mediator of another covenant with God. All right? Now, it says that he is mediator of a better covenant. I was thinking, you know, we need to understand what we mean by the word covenant. And probably the best uh, way we could uh, picture we have is a marriage, right? We often call it the, the marriage covenant, right, or the covenant of marriage. Right? And the idea is an agreement. So, uh, you know, there was once a, uh, why don't you skip to the next one? The picture, I like the picture, no. I'm sorry. There's a picture of me and Sharon somewhere <laughs> getting married. There you go, that's the one. That's, yeah, I, I must have uh, put things in the wrong order for Jake, not his fault, mine. Um, you know, Sharon and I got, got married. It was a, you know, a wonderful wedding. And uh, in the wedding, we said something like that. So now you can go back to the text, right? And we promised ourselves to each other. And uh, somewhere down the line, it says, till death does us part. This was the marriage covenant. This is us making an agreement before God and before people of committing ourselves to each other until death does us part. I'm, I'm going to be your husband, Sharon. And I'm going to love you and I'm going to take care of you until... I die or you die, right? That's the only thing that will break this bond. It's a covenant. It's a promise, right? Now, I've been told that some people have changed it. Instead of death does us part, they say something along the line till, you know, we no longer love each other, right? You know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll commit ourselves to each other until one of us doesn't feel this way anymore, right? I mean, that's, that's really the way it is working out in the world anyways. But some people have gone as far as actually making it part of the covenant, Knowing in advance, maybe one day we won't love each other, feel this way anymore, and so we'll just separate and go our ways, right? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it weakens the relationship, right? So, I mean, right now I have a certain confidence in my relationship with Sharon. It's something I can depend on, right? Sharon and I work as a team. We do a lot of things together, including having children and raising children. And I wouldn't feel as comfortable doing all those things if I knew that any moment she may have changed her mind, decided she doesn't love me anymore, and she's going to leave. Right? It's, it's a weakening of the relationship. And so when it says that God made a better covenant with us, it talks about relationship. Right? God had a certain covenant with the nation of Israel. He has a better covenant to us, which allows us to have a better relationship with God. It's really what it's talking about. And... Uh, it says it's a better covenant which was established on better promises. And that's really what the rest of the passage today is about. It's about the promises that God makes for us in the new covenant 
he is offering to us on which we can establish our relationship with God. So the first promise we have, actually, kind of skipping a little bit, um, he doesn't start with a promise. He first uh, talks about the old covenant and the reason we need to replace it, or really the failure of the old covenant. Um, and we'll, but we'll go ahead and read the whole section starting at verse 7. So Hebrews, this is going to be the rest of our passage for today. For if that first covenant had been faultless, Right? If the old covenant was perfect, then no place would have been sought for a second. No one would look for another covenant, right? would be satisfied if the first one was perfect. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Let me pause here. So there's a transition when he says, because finding fault with them, he says, now he's quoting the Old Testament. And really, you know, up to verse 12, this is just a quotation taken directly from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, right? So we're looking here at the Jewish scriptures, right? Written maybe 500 years before Christ, right? This is a prophecy, which is now being quoted in the New Testament. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. End quote. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So first we have here the failure of the old covenant. How do we know the old covenant failed? Well, to start with, because God starts talking about a new covenant, right? He wouldn't have to talk about a new covenant if the old covenant was still good, right? Clearly we need something new to restore the relationship, is what he's saying here. Then he also says it very specifically, right? He says uh, that finding fault in them, right? Here's the covenant, the relationship between me and you. You know what? One of the parties didn't keep the end of the bargain. Guess who? It wasn't God. Exodus 24. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. This is going back to Mount Sinai when God brings Israel out of Egypt. He gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, and Israel says, Amen, we will keep all those things. Moses is saying, I'm not sure you guys were paying attention. So, you know, let's, let's slow down and do this appropriately. You know, you, you may have accepted my... Uh, my uh, 
my offer to marry you, right? I went on my knee, I offered you the ring, you said yes, but I'd like to have an official wedding ceremony where we can take this covenant together and agree, you know, in the sight of witnesses, right? It's kind of what Moses is, is, uh, is doing here next, verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, now he's writing it down, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel, one representing each tribe. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Right? Now we have a written you know, everything is written black and white. Let's make sure we understand what we're doing here, okay? And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Here was the covenant between God and the nation of Israel. He gave them his law from Mount Sinai, and they said, we will do it. He said, I will be your God. They said, we will be your people. And it seemed like they would now live happily ever after. But uh, as we see in the history of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel wasn't faithful to their promise to God. And they turned away from him and they worshiped idols. And eventually God did, as he says in this passage, he disregarded them. Right? The relationship was now broken. Now, we want to be careful here. As we said, the fault lied with the children of Israel. Uh, the passage stresses this. Right? God was good. He was the one leading them by the hand. I have a picture of what that looks like, but I think all of you know what it's like when we're holding someone by the hand. God loved the nation of Israel, right? And, uh, and he, you know, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and he fed them with manna, and he brought water out of the rock, and he gave them shoes and clothes that didn't wear out. Right? He brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He helped them defeat all their enemies. And then even when they sinned against him, it's not like God disinherited them the moment they sinned, right? Or it would have happened very early on. You know, he, you know he's patient with them. Eventually, he, he does rebuke and chastise the nation, you know, and restore them to himself. And they wander off again, and he restores them to himself. And you see that happening over and over in the Old Testament before God finally says, okay, enough is enough, okay? Point made. You don't want me, <laughs> right? So it wasn't God at fault. Now, it also wasn't God's laws that were at fault. Some people say, well, God was too picky. You know, his, lo- his laws were just too difficult for them to keep. So what were the laws God gave them? We have a nice summary for us by Paul in Romans 13. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. All God asked them to do was love each other, right, and love him, right? I mean, that shouldn't be so difficult to do if we're loving good people, right? 
And uh, just imagine what this world would be like, you know, if we all loved each other, what would it be like to drive on the freeway? You know, people make room for each other. You know, all these disasters, you know, happening in the world. If you're reading about what's happening in Syria and in Iraq, you know, people killing each other, atrocities, you know, none of that would be happening. This situation in the slums in, in Nairobi, you know, what would it be like if everybody loved everybody, right? That's all God was asking, right? So, I mean, God's laws were good. It's not God's fault. It's not God's law's fault. What's the fault? Right? It's us, right? The problem is that we are not good as much as we would like to think of ourselves as good, right? So God was good. His laws were good. And you know what? Even his plan was good. He knew Israel was going to fail. He knew Israel was not going to be able to keep the law. As he gave them this covenant, he allows them to enter it because he knows that through this process they will understand something about themselves, that they were sinners, right? That is how they were a people prepared for the Lord, right? And that's why he could say something like... uh, And she will bring forth a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? That's why God sent Jesus. And that's why the Jews were the people prepared for Jesus, because they were the people who should have known their sin and their need for a Savior. Right? That's really the hardest thing for God, is to convince us that we need someone to save us from our sins. And the nation of Israel was supposed to be that nation, and to some extent they were. We know the nation of Israel on a national level rejected Jesus, but you know what? All the 12 apostles were Jews. (laughs) You know, the first church, the beginning of the church, they were Jewish. So God was able to extract out of this nation, he prepared a seed out of which to build the church, which, praise the Lord, has spread to the ends of the earth, right? And includes, you know, everyone from every nation, every language, every tongue, right, can now share in God's salvation. Okay, Uh, so let's look at the promises in the New Covenant. So that's the Old Covenant, the failure of it. it. What's the first promise? First promise, he said, um, right, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their heart. What is he saying? I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you. Right? I know the problem is on the inside, and that's why I'm going to change the inside. Right? It says it like this in uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Right? God knows we have a heart problem. And he had planned the first heart transplant surgery. <laughs> right? Take away the old heart of sin, and give us a new heart that's like his, a heart ready to love. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When I was uh, saved, I I found this change. I mean, this is my personal experience. You know, I got up one morning. Later that day, I understood for the first time what Jesus did for me on the cross. I went to sleep a different creature. I, I was changed. Uh, Sharon, before you were saved, would you have gone to uh, 
Kenya, the Nairobi, walk among the slums of people who never did anything for you, why did you go? Right? Because God put a seed in your heart. Right? He changed your heart, gave you a love for other people, a love for him. And that's God's promise for each one of you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, he is offering a heart transplant. Give you a heart just like his, just like his heart. Second promise, he wants a relationship with you. Right? He says, um, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's interesting because he's speaking to the nation of Israel, and well, aren't you already their God? Aren't you already their people? Can I get the other picture of, uh, of Sharon Miepter, the picture of the picture? You know, I married Sharon not so that I could have a picture in the wall, right? Look, I got married to Sharon, <laughs> right? And that's so I can show people the certificate. Look, we got married. Right? I married her for the relationship. Right? I wanted to be with her. I wanted to do things with her. Right? And that's what God wants which, with each and every one of us. Right? He wants a real relationship with us. He wants to experience that relationship. He wants to, to love us, to do things for us. And he wants to experience our love, us doing things for him. Uh, we often get a wrong idea of God and what it is that God wants from us. We think he wants our money or we think he wants us to do some sort of a good work, right? And yet all that God really wants is a relationship. Um, and we went to a, a play about Christmas. I mentioned that yesterday. And they changed things around, of course, but they had someone who kind of represented Scrooge. Anyone remember Scrooge from uh, the Christmas story? You know, here's this old man and he has all this money and he's really a happy person. No, he's not a happy person because all he has is money and what he's missing is relationships. He's, you know, he's, he's living by himself. He has no wife. He has no children. He's missing out on the joy of Christmas, right? And uh, that's true about this world. You know, we get pushed this idea of, you know, if you have money, if you have stuff, you're going to be happy. But it's all a lie, right? It's really relationships ultimately that make us happy, whether it's a marriage relationship, whether it's having children, whether it's having friends. Why would God be any different? Why does God want anything other than a relationship from us? If this is the way he made us, that the only thing that satisfies us is a relationship, and he made us after his own image, why would anything other than a relationship satisfy him? Right? This is why we were created. This is why, you know, one day I woke up with what I would call a God-shaped hole in my heart. Right? And I tried to fit it, fill it with other relationships, and I failed. Why? Because God made it for himself. Right? He made us for himself to have a relationship with him. Right? And that's his promise for us in the new covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's what he wants. The third promise is, uh, is uh, direct access to himself, is, is what I call it here. He says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And I think this is, to some extent, was the result of the Levitical system. Now, you know, God didn't want anything less than perfect for the children of Israel, but they needed to understand something about the holiness of God. And so not everybody could walk into the presence of God in the nation of Israel, Right? The only person who could do that was the high priest. And you know what? He could only do it once a year. 
And he'd better offer the sacrifices just right and come offering blood as he approached God. Let's say you were the next in line. You were a priest, not the high priest. Well, now you, you can work in the tabernacle. You could go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, and do certain work. You just weren't allowed to really go into the presence of God ever. All right, the next step back would be the Levites. Well, now you're allowed to work around. You can't offer the sacrifices, but you can do some work around the tabernacle, so you're kind of close. You're interacting with the priests on a regular basis. Let's say you're not a Levite. Well, now your access stops at the entrance to the tabernacle. This is as close as you're going to get to God. So no surprise, people had to go to people and say, know the Lord, right? Because naturally, they had no access to him, right? They needed to be reminded, right, of the importance to know about God and to try to please God. It was, you know, kind of a distant relationship. Now, again, not that God wanted anything less than perfect for the nation of Israel, but that was something they needed to understand about God, his holiness. Well, now all of that is going away, in the new covenant, right? It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So the picture of me holding Joey's hand again? <laughs> That's it. That's what God wants, right? That close of a relationship. Nothing between you and God is God's desire for you. Fourth and last promise, he says, I will remember your sins no more. We have children, as you've noticed, and uh, sometime one of our children will do something to one of our other children, and there'll be tears and other things involved with that. And we're trying to raise our children, you know, unto the Lord, and so we'll say, you have to apologize. Right? You did something wrong now. Tell them you're sorry. Okay, they do that. I'm sorry. Uh, well, now we have to go to the other child and say, you need to forgive them. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> right? And, and you know, you, there's still something, some barrier left in the relationship, right? You know, there wasn't this perfect forgiveness. But not so with God, right? He says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. When God puts away our sins, he puts it away forever. It says this in the psalm, uh, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. In uh, the book of Acts, we read the account of uh, Paul and Silas uh, witnessing. They were going from town to town telling people about Christ. And uh, in one of those towns, Paul casts out a demon from a young girl. And uh, apparently, she and the demon were doing important work and making a lot of money for some people. And as a result, Paul gets cast into prison. And in prison, he was crying and shedding tears. Was he? No, he was singing praises to God. And uh, obviously, that draws some attention. And then when God does an earthquake and loosens everybody, well, that draws more attention. And when the jailer comes in ready to fall on his own sword because all the prisoners have escaped, and Paul says, no, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. The jailer falls before them, and uh, he says, what does he say? He says, and he brought him out and said, sirs, what 
must I do to be saved? So they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and your household. How do we enter this new covenant? God is offering us all these things, right? He's offering us to change us from the inside, a genuine relationship with him, you know, nothing in between, complete forgiveness of our sins. What do I have to do to have it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Same thing the nation of Israel had to do with the high priest. They had to depend on the high priest. There was a professional help, right? There was somebody there. That was his job to fix the relationship with God. It's the same thing with the Lord Jesus, right? The only difference, he, he does everything, right? You don't have to bring, you know, the sacrifice. And he does it, and he does it once and for all. But it's the same thing. You have to put your trust in him. He does the work, right? The new covenant is something that where Jesus does all the work. All he's asking you to do is put his faith in him. Okay. Last verse in our passage. In that he says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. A few uh, months ago I noticed a, a whistling sound as I was driving my car and, you know, close the window. I mean, open the window, close the window, still the whistling sound. <laughs> and I inspected it and found, oh yeah, there's a little hole in the gasket. Actually, it was more, it was kind of like a, a fold, a crack or something like that. Anyways, so I was like, okay, well, you know, I guess I need a new gasket. So I called Toyota, okay. You know, tell us the model of your car, tell us the part. Sorry, sir, this part is obsolete. We no longer make it. That car is just 13 years old. What do you mean obsolete? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's what happened to the Old Testament, right? I mean, the old covenant that God has made. Right? Now, it was a genuine covenant, a genuine opportunity for Israel to relate to him. But now it's gone. God has made a new and far better covenant with us, opportunity for a relationship with him. And just in case, some of the Hebrews said, well, we really want to go back. You know, in spite of everything you tell us, he said, you know, that way is just no longer available. Today, it's, uh, this is one of the less popular teachings in the Bible. Uh, there's just one way. Peter and John said it this way, nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as I said, this is one of the less popular teachings in the Bible today. Uh, people feel that we need to be inclusive, Right? Here's somebody from a different culture and a different religion. You know, who am I to say to them that their way doesn't get them to heaven? We should tell them, sure, your way gets you to heaven. Right? Hey, everybody, just pick your own way. I mean, that certainly sounds like the nice thing to say, right? Be inclusive, to accept people and all the way. But if God made a way to heaven, what obligation does God have to accept any other way? 
Right? Let's not look at it from man's perspective. Let's look at, it, look at it from God's perspective. If God made a way, well, anybody can come. Right? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And anyone is able to come. All you have to do is believe in him. Right? He's not asking for anything that's too hard to do. Who am I to come to God and say, God, I don't think your way is good enough. I don't think you're accepting my culture. You know, there's a lot of other things that are important to me, and I feel devalued here. So here, God, I have my own way of coming to you. My son shed his blood for you. I've made a way that will take you all the way to heaven at an infinite cost to myself. But God, you don't understand. This is not how I was raised. You know, I have a family that may uh, disinherit me, you know, if I do this. You can't ask me to do that, God. What about you? Have you come to God in the way that he has made? The new covenant, have you put your trust in Jesus as your high priest? Have you had the heart transplant that God promises you? Have you entered into a personal relationship with him that he wants you to have? Have you had your sins removed from you as far as the east is from the west? If not, what is keeping you back from coming to God through Jesus? Is it fear, fear of what others might say or do to you? Is it pride? You don't think you're so bad that you need him to be your high priest in heaven, offering his blood as payment for your sins? Or is it that you don't think you are good enough for this covenant? God has made it, and it is good enough. Jesus is able to act as your high priest. Come to him. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your very gracious offer to be our high priest, Lord. Uh, we pray for anyone here or anyone listening to this message who does not know you, Lord, that they'll realize your offer is good, it's good today, it's good for them, and that they should put their trust in you, Lord. We commit them into your care in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.